Father, we thank you so much for this blessed time. Thank you that we can worship you freely, that we have access to your presence anywhere at any time. Thank you for all that you have done for us. We praise you. We worship you today. It's such a privilege to be able to hear your word. And at this time, that's exactly what we're going to hear, your word. We pray a special blessing over your servant as he speaks. Because your word is living and active, we pray that it would have an impact on our lives. Bless our speaker and bless our hearts as we receive this word. For your glory and for our good, in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. Uh, I trust that uh, you're ready to spend some time focusing on God's word this morning from Matthew chapter 5, uh, verses 33 to 37. Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 to 37. A small portion of... Uh, the Sermon on the Mount, as it is famously known. So I'm going to start out this morning by asking a very uh, silly but rhetorical question. Are you tired of COVID-19? You are. Well, I'm glad to hear because me too. One of the things that we all have consumed over the last few months, uh, aside from chips and all the other stuff that perhaps we should not be consuming is news. People are hungry for news about this pandemic. Don't know about you, but uh, listening to and reading some of the stories about the pandemic, I wondered if they are talking about the same COVID-19. It feels like truth has been the biggest casualty of this pandemic and every politician and medical professional is trying to spin the narrative to suit their agenda, be it political or financial. While that's not my message today, it relates to the idea of integrity and truthfulness and what God calls us to be. So another rhetorical question, perhaps that hits closer to our hearts this morning is, how good is your word? How many people do you know that when they are speaking to you, you are confident that they are telling you the truth? Conversely, or perhaps a better question is, if I ask those who knew you the same question, would your name immediately come to their minds? A challenging question, to be sure. So let's read uh, the text from Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 to 37. If you have your Bibles with you, please uh, open your Bibles to the Gospel according to Matthew, the first book in the New Testament. Starting at verse 33 in chapter 5. The subtitle there says Oaths, O-A-T-H-S. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, 
but keep the oaths you have made to the Lord. But I tell you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. Simply, let your yes be yes, and your no, no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Ouch, that's kind of a pretty uh, hard thing for us to listen to. But the fundamental truth remains, and the question that we need to ask ourselves is, when we say something, when we speak to somebody, how good is our word? So Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 to 37, in some ways is an easy topic to understand. There's not a whole lot of theology in it. Uh, Jesus is not trying to trick question you. He is not trying to confuse you. But I will be the first one to confess that it's a difficult passage to preach on. And furthermore, it is an extremely challenging passage to live in our day-to-day -day lives. It is difficult to preach because only my heart knows whether I myself, whatever it is that I am saying this morning in my message, if I am speaking the truth. Of course, God knows. But those of you that are listening to this message, you have no idea. I mean, I can, I can put together some nice words, uh, but uh, you cannot examine my heart to say whether the words that I am speaking of have honesty and integrity and truthfulness. So in many ways, um, I'm preaching this message to myself and pleading with God to help me live a life of honesty and integrity in my weakness, in my failures. And I simply invite your indulgence in this teaching to myself. And in so doing, if the Lord's Spirit is speaking to your conscience, I encourage you to yield. Let me start in the reverse order from the text here by going to verse 37. Jesus says, simply let your yes be yes and your no, no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. My father used to say when we were growing up, uh, at times when we were trying to uh, spin something, when you're caught, uh, he used to say that always speak the truth, you have fewer details to remember. Always speak the truth, you have, you have fewer details to remember. Because once you start telling one lie, you have to remember a lot of details that we make up in order to cover up the first lie. So our passage this morning is about taking oaths and being honest people because God desires honesty in his people. In John chapter four, verse 24, uh, we read that God is spirit and they that worship him must worship him in spirit 
and in truth. Now, God created us in his image. One of the ways we are to reflect God's image is to walk in honesty with his fellow human beings. In Proverbs 6, 16 to 19, we read of six things the Lord hates and seven that are detestable to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a man who stirs up dissension among brothers. Now clearly two of them have to do with truth-telling. So let me share with you three quick thoughts this morning for us to challenge ourselves and continue to uh, examine our own lives and our own speech as we relate to others, uh, be it in the church, in our family, in our marriages, or anywhere else at workplace. So first one is obviously starts with human sin, uh, human sin and God's love. That's my first uh, subtitle. Now, obviously, Satan was the first liar. He appeared in the garden to deceive Adam and Eve. He decided he deceived Eve by convincing her that God did not have her best interests at heart. I mean, it always works. Uh, you want to deceive somebody, you always tell them that so-and-so individual does not have your best interests at heart. And there's something about the human psyche that we tend to believe that. Satan tells Eve that God lied about the reason he forbade Adam and Eve to eat that fruit. And Adam and Eve believed Satan's lie, Satan's lie. Humanity still suffers from this ailment. When God appeared and asked Adam and Eve about the fruit, we see it right away as I had shared earlier both of them start to lie. They lied even to God. Now, all humankind fell in that garden. We know that. Forget about what kind of fruit it was that Adam and Eve ate. It doesn't really matter. The truth is that they willfully disobeyed God's instructions. Many of us wrestle with similar challenges in our own lives. And if any of you that is listening to this message this morning or your family can say otherwise, as I usually like to say, may your tribe increase in leaps and bounds. In Romans 3.13, God describes all people as deceitful and has some harsh words to explain our human condition. It's not even pleasant to hear. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. From God's perspective, no person born in sin can truly be trusted but for the saving grace through Jesus Christ. Yet God loved us so much that he decided to do something about our sinful condition. It would be so discouraging and depressing if what I had read just a moment ago is left to stand. But we have John 3.16 as that promise, wonderful promise in which God fulfilled his promise in Jesus Christ who came to redeem us from sin and receive us 
into spending eternity with him. However, there is a condition. We understand conditions. And that condition says, whoever believes in the name of Jesus, whoever repents and seeks forgiveness, God told the truth to humanity. 2,000 years ago, the Savior was born in Israel. Some 33 years later, this Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, died on a cross and rose again to redeem humankind from certain destruction. Now, humanity may struggle with truth, but God does not lie. The entire Old Testament can be summed up in this way. God promised to deliver, and he told the truth. He sent his son in Jesus Christ just as he promised. God redeemed a people for himself that would reflect his truth, not the truth as humanity likes to shape. So in verses 33 to 37 in Matthew chapter 5, a small part of what is well known as the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus explains the importance of integrity and truthfulness in his kingdom. Now, we all learn these tricks right from when we are, we are small. Uh, a story is told of four high school boys who were late to their morning classes one day. They entered the classroom and solemnly told their teacher that they were detained due to a flat tire. The sympathetic teacher smiled and, and told them it was too bad uh, they were late because they had missed a test that morning. But she was willing to let them make it up. Uh, she gave them each a piece of paper and a pencil and sent them to four corners of the room. Then she told them they would all receive an A if they could answer just one question. Which tire was flat? That's all they had to answer. Which tire was flat? And they would get an A if all four of them gave the right answer. You know where I'm going with that story. The business of telling the truth and living with integrity is not just a Christian trait to be followed. It needs to be a human trait for all people for all times. Our entire judicial system is built on truth telling. At least that's the idea. Of course, it becomes particularly more critical for Christians because Jesus calls us to live with integrity and we claim to live with integrity and the world around us is watching to see whether we live with integrity. And that's why some of the uh, stories in the media when uh, there are things that happen within the church, uh, media tends to be particularly harsh and rightfully so because we claim to be something that we are not living up to. Never mind that the leaders charged with making sure the laws of our country are upheld are accused of being the biggest lawbreakers. And yet, for all the ethical lapses and moral failures of our nation's leaders, we find very little outrage from our society. We can ask all kinds of questions about that, but the responsibility that Christianity 
gives to us through God's word is how good is your word when you speak to others. A second thought for us this morning is taking oaths. We all understand that. Uh, movies are full of these kinds of concepts. Uh, people understand what it means. Uh, we make uh, a kind of oaths or promissory notes uh, almost on a daily basis. If we are signing for something, uh, or buying a home or a car or whatever the case may be, we are entering into a contract. A contract is basically, it's kind of an oath that you're promising. So what happens when someone is sworn in as a witness in a court of law is a routine that goes back into ancient traditions, back to the Bible and probably even further back than that. Now in ancient, ancient law codes, it was recognized that a society had particular occasions when it was necessary to ascertain that the absolute truth would be told. And that means for doing that was to swear an oath. So when you took an oath, you might do a couple of things. For example, many times in the Bible, the sign is raising your right hand to heaven. Another sign was to place your hand on something that was considered sacred. And the third sign was to name something precious or holy that the oath would be based on. It might be God himself. It might be heaven or earth, or it might be your own life or your own head or a more contemporary version or expression that people often uh, you hear saying, I swear on my mother's grave. I have no idea what mother's grave has to do with you telling the truth, but people say that all the time. Or sometimes we say that, you know, so-and-so is rolling in his grave for whatever is going on. I don't know what it means, but obviously certain traditions have brought up those kinds of things. The idea is something like this. If what I am saying is not true, then the dishonor is on my God or my head or my mother or heaven itself. Now, this is at the very foundation of our legal system. The witness to be sworn in raises his or her right hand toward heaven places a hand on the Bible and swears to tell the truth, the whole truth. So help them God. Now it is a routine that has been followed for thousands of years. And what follows is supposed to be the truth. Supposed to be the truth. It is a legal requirement. And now obviously, uh, Bible can be, uh, you know, something else of a holy book or you can affirm if you choose not to take an oath on a, on a Bible or a holy book. Now there are stiff penalty, penalties for perjury or lying under oath. And yet we see truth being massaged all the time when people stand on a witness stand and try to tell a version of the truth. Now legal oaths play an important role in the passion and trial of Jesus as well. You know the story of Peter, how he denied that he even knew Jesus three times as Jesus had predicted he would. The first denial is described like this, Matthew chapter 26, verse 70. Peter denied it before all of them saying, I do not know what you're talking about. The second denial is described in this fashion. 
Again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. And then the third denial. Then Peter began to curse and he swore an oath. I do not know the man. At that moment, the cock crowed. Peter was so fearful and so vehement in his lie that he did it under oath in order to satisfy the people that were calling him as one of the disciples of Jesus Christ. Now, we don't go into the Peter saying, you know, big things before this all happened. I'm sure uh, if we examine our own lives carefully, we can find many Peters in our own lives. At the trial of Jesus, the high priest said these words, I put you under oath before the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. If you read the words of Jesus carefully in Matthew chapter 26, verse 64, you will see that he does not answer that accusation. Nonetheless, the high priest tears his own robe, cries out that Jesus committed blasphemy and condemns him to death. Now, those of us that have been following Christ and have accepted him know the rest of that redemption story of God, Christ's death and resurrection. Now, the difficulty in coming to a clear position on taking oaths is the mixed bag of messages we get even in the Bible. Now, in the Old Testament, we see at many points that God permits this business of taking an oath. If you read Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 20, it reads, Fear the Lord your God and serve him. Hold fast to him and take your oaths in his name. The Apostle Paul in Romans 1, verse 9, 2 Corinthians 1, 23, 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 5, and verse 10. Philippians 1, 8. We're not going to read all of them. I would encourage you to uh, read at your own leisure uses the name of God as his witness. I mean, I don't know about you uh, growing up uh, in our family. Uh, we were told very strictly that if we were asked to tell something, if we were asked about something, that we do not use God as a witness or that we take an oath with God's name in our oath. So um, personally myself, I have grown up like that and I would never uh, take an oath. I will simply say, this is what I'm saying to you. This is what my word is and I will stand by my word. And if I'm unable to stand by my word, I will simply choose not to give my word, period. In Genesis 9, verse 9, God himself says, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you. But in our text this morning, we find in verse 34, and, um, but I tell you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. The metaphors that are given here are unmistakable. I mean, he's not literally saying that earth is his footstool or Jerusalem is where he is the only place that he lives. 
What he's saying is that everything belongs to God. So you cannot uh, kind of take particular things that God himself has created and use them as uh, objects of taking your oath or making your promises. And then do not swear by your word, by your head, sorry. For you cannot make even one hair white or black unless you are using the dye. Now, obviously, many people do. So that's not what this means. Basically, Jesus is saying, speak the truth at all times. Which brings me to my third point. Simple truth. Simple truth. Now, instead of understanding both the letter and the spirit of the law concerning oaths, the people distorted the truth to mean that one was only obligated when the oath is taken in God's name. That's how people kind of got around that. God had said in Leviticus 19 verse 12, you shall not swear falsely by my name. So they used that particular verse to say, I did not use God's name or, you know, and somehow get around uh, this idea of not speaking the truth. Now this command was corrupted to eventually mean that it was acceptable to swear falsely by any other name. And so people began to swear by heaven, by earth, by Jerusalem, and even by their own heads and developed an extensive and complicated rules and regulations on which oaths are binding and which oaths are not. Now Jesus spoke against such frivolous oaths clearly in this text. What he's saying essentially is that if you speak the truth at all times, there is no need to swear or to take oaths of any kind. Needless to say that this form of standing on our word is fast becoming a thing of the past and we are required in most legal documents to sign our name and make oaths to promissory notes, etc. This had not been what God had intended at all. The emphasis on taking an oath was that it should not be frivolous. Here, the people had corrupted the truth and tried to evade the real issue. Now, Jesus reminded them that everything belongs to God, heaven and earth, Jerusalem, and even the hairs of our own heads. In other words, we stand before our almighty God all the time naked for him to judge us, to see us, to hear us. He not only hears us and sees and examines our very thoughts, what we say and think in his name and holds us accountable for our thoughts and our words. Kind of scary at times when you think about it, but that's the whole point. The point of continuing to walk in Christ's ways is to reflect and examine our own hearts and minds and our speech. And so that when people hear us, when people observe us, they see a witness and a testimony to the living and loving name of Jesus Christ. Now what Jesus was doing was condemning the hypocrisy of those who would seek to avoid the real issue of 
simple honesty, truthfulness, and integrity. Now, while the people were trying to be technically correct, and we can be technically and legally correct in a court of law, they were being practically dishonest in their heart, in their mind, and in what they were saying. So Jesus cuts to the real issue of the heart. Do you remember the saying? I don't know if you did. If wealth is lost, it is said, you lost nothing because it can be gained back. If health is lost, you've lost something because it impacts the way we live. If character or reputation is lost, everything is lost because no one believes a word we say. For those who claim to be the followers of Jesus Christ, he is challenging us to not see our faith in terms of the legalistic ways in which the people of his time viewed everything. But not only people of his time, but the people of our time, how we view truth as we speak. But to speak the truth at all times and be as good as our word. Integrity, trustworthiness, truthfulness, keeping our word. These things should be important to us because our lives speak volumes about who we are as followers of Christ. I believe that's what Jesus was talking about. President Benjamin Franklin said that the average person tells 36 fibs a day. Apparently, I don't know how he counted, but that's what he said. It may be that some of them are just polite necessities, but many of them are the way we do business, uh, the way we protect ourselves, the way we play the game. How many of you have uh, planned a surprise birthday party or anniversary party? And if you invited 100 people, you probably uh, told 100 lies. Ah, you know, fun lies, polite necessities. Because all the time you're telling your wife or husband or your best friend or someone that you're doing a surprise party for, oh, you're just going out for dinner. You're just going for this. You're just going for that. All the time... I know you're going, ah, Vijay, you're getting really picky here. I am. But you get my point. Jesus wants us to consider a different way. The way of simple, honest integrity. But Jesus said, it is the truth that sets us free. And the more we discover that, the more we discover that we are living in his amazing grace. Jesus gives us a challenge this morning, every morning, to be as good as our word. So, I'll come back to my first question. How good is your word? Let's be encouraged by Jesus' words, which will hopefully underscore for us the importance of being women and men of integrity. God bless us all. Amen. This is my
desire to honor you. Lord, with all my heart, I worship you. service uh, this morning, I just want to uh, give a blessing uh, to end the service. Taken from Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, it kind of connects to our message today. 
Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen.